Thanks for joining us for a podcast from the Illinois Early Learning Project. Our project is part of the Department of Special Education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and funded by the Illinois State Board of Education. On this podcast, we share information about how young children grow and learn, as well as strategies adults can use to help them thrive. My name is Natalie Danner. Welcome to the Illinois Early Learning Podcast. Today, we are talking about childcare during COVID-19. This is the first podcast in a three-part series, so be sure to be on the lookout for parts two and three as they're released. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brent McBride of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. McBride is the director of the Child Development Laboratory on campus, a National Association for the Education of Young Children, NAEYC, accredited early childhood program and lab school for 160 children ages infant through preschool. He's also one of the leading researchers in the area of father involvement. Thank you so much for being with us today, Brent. All right. Thank you, Natalie. I enjoyed the invitation. I appreciate the invitation. So today we're eager to hear from you as the director of the Child Development Lab because you have a very interesting story of how you continued operating during COVID-19 and the lessons you learned. So to start us off, let's go back to the beginning of the pandemic last spring. What happened to the Child Development Lab as COVID-19 first began to impact residents in Illinois? Well, as you know, as a university-based laboratory school, we have a two-part mission. We serve and address the early care and education needs of 160 children and their families, while at the same time balancing that service side of what we do with the academic side of what we do, which is to support teaching, research, outreach, and engagement here on the university's campus. And to do that, we do a lot of different things. Like we have close to 4,000 students coming through our doors to do observations and support coursework, students doing uh, field placements, internships, uh, practicum placements, students engaged in research projects, and I can go on and on and on. In March, when the University of Illinois said we need to stop and move everything after spring break to an online format for instruction, we as a university-based lab school ceased functioning as a lab school and immediately went into a service entity only. So we continued providing that early care and education for a couple of weeks after that decision was made to our children whose families were comfortable continuing to send their children to the program. When the governor's stay-at-home orders came out, though, uh, that basically shut down childcare throughout the state, except for those under emergency license, we immediately applied for an emergency license. And we had a capacity to go up to serving 28 children under that emergency license. So we can no longer serve those 160 children and their families that we normally did. And we operated under that emergency license uh, uh, for essential employees, both essential employees on our campus and in uh, community families as well. As a unit here on the University of Illinois campus, during that time when we were operating under that um, uh, emergency license, we have 44 full-time staff members. We maintain at the direction of the university administration, all 44 employees. So they were all working. So we didn't need 44 teachers to take care of 28 kids. But what we did is we used that time to our benefit in terms of having that time to develop, uh, do our focus on our own professional development as teachers, to 
to focus on coming up with the plan. So once we went back into a large scale operation, what are the things that we need to do in terms of the safety protocols, the policies and practices that we need to have in place ready to go once the doors came open again. Wow, so Spring gave you a great opportunity to not only meet the needs of families in the area, but also to have the benefit of that smaller enrollment during that time to develop and work out day-to-day -day practices for COVID-19. So what are some of those things that you learned during that time of trial and error? And I, and I cannot stress to you how important that time was. So it wasn't like we were waiting, 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 and then the doors open and here came 140 kids or something like that. We used that small scale number to figure out things like what kind of drop off and pick up procedures do we need to have in place that really work for us and work for our families as well? How do we handle traffic flow, egress and ingress uh, into the building and out of the building uh, in such a way that we could follow all those safety protocols that we were being asked to live by? How could we, we use that time on a very small scale to fine tune our screening procedures at drop off and at pickup as well? How do we do temps for kids and uh, their families and staff as they're coming and going in a way that doesn't create bottlenecks? Um, how do we do things like um, sanitizing multiple times during the course of the day with staff members? How can we do that in such a way that it doesn't disrupt the programming you're providing for children but still meets the health and safety needs? How do we handle classroom staffing patterns? We, you know, it used to be where we'd have like floaters that would go from classroom to classroom to deal with uh, breaks and lunch uh, time and so on. We had to figure out how do we not co-mingle our staff during these times. So having that small scale opportunity made it so that once we moved back up to large numbers, we were very confident of what we had in place. Great, so how did you continue to connect with other families who weren't essential workers during that time and their young children? But for me, as an educator, that was a very interesting process. Uh, as a somewhat older educator who's a little bit skeptical of uh, technology, especially with young, young children, I was a little bit leery of it. But as I watched my teachers, you know, again, we didn't need 44 teachers to engage 28 kids. They put a lot of effort and a lot of time into outreach and engagement activities with the families. So they were doing regularly, twice or three times a week, these Zoom group time meetings with all as many kids as possible to do things like a story time, group uh, physical activity time, group dance time, group music times, and so on. Uh, they also did Zoom one-on-ones with the kids just to maintain that connection. Uh, and that, I think that was very important for some of our children to maintain that connection. We had some teachers who did one-on-one Zoom meetings with parents as a support mechanism as well because parents were under a lot of stress as they were learning to cope with this new reality as well as their children. Each of the classrooms also developed these activity packets that they sent home on a regular basis. They would schedule times. Uh, we have a circle drive in front of one of our two buildings. They would schedule times where parents would come to pick up these activity packets. They would have things to, for the children to engage in with their parents at home. The parents would send us pictures of that engagement with those materials. They would post them down in newsletters and so on. We also did um, weekly food distribution. Um, about a third of our families uh, received some sort of a tuition support through the child care assistance program, through a couple of different grants that we have for low-income student parents and through our sliding fee scale. So we made on Friday afternoons available the food distribution that parents would drive in through the circle drive and we give it to them because we were under contract from the caterers to get the food. So we had to do something with the food. And I hope you thought that was a good, effort, good way to deal with it. 
That's great. So you talked a little bit about the health and safety of the children and the families that you were thinking about. How have the new health and safety standards impacted you as a center? And then what are the policies that you're currently following in the center this fall? We're definitely not looking like we were at this time last year. (laughs) So much of our day-to-day life has uh, changed. Anything from even though the state of Illinois and uh, we're in phase four, we're not no longer operating under uh, uh, emergency license. We're still limited on capacity for fruit size. Uh, so instead of the 160 children, we're only serving 144. We've had significant changes in how we handle drop-off and pickup procedures. Um, we have restricted the time frames when this when this can occur, uh, just because. It's a staffing issue. You know, you have to have people there to do the uh, screenings and so on. Uh, we've had things where we can no longer mix children. So we can't have two groups together in a space. They can't have shared spaces, playground inside spaces as well. We can no longer do co-mingling of staff, uh, which has a significant impact on how we staff our classrooms. Um, we've limited the group sizes that we have within a classroom in terms of like table activities. Rather than having five or six at a table, we'll limit to two or three, depending on what the activity is. Um, we no longer practice family-style meal service, again, because that's one of the things that that's recommended that we not do. We're doing a heck of a lot of laundry, <laughs> the bedding and so on, the smocks for the teachers, all these things need to be cleaned on a much more regular basis. Um, we don't have uh, comfort toys coming from home, the soft, cushy comfort toys. All the kids who are two or older, they're wearing masks at all times except for when they're eating and when they're in outdoor situations on the playground or going for lock. Uh, we changed logistically how we handle nap time. Used to be just line the cots up, you know, right next to each other and kids would fall asleep. We changed it and encouraged that distancing and so on. Um, another example, and this is a big one, um, kids have to have school shoes. So they come in with their outside shoes on, they get to the program, part of the drop-off procedure involves them changing their shoes before they enter the classroom. Um, you know, that sounds hokey, but it's, it's a big thing trying to figure out how to do that. Um, we've had to change our exclusion policies following Illinois Department of Public Health guidelines as far as, you know, they, in fact, they just gave us a new updated uh, exclusion flowchart. Uh, and these, these uh, decisions on when do we send a child home and under what criteria we're using, it's very important that we've had to learn to communicate that um, to the family so they understand we're just not picking on you. We're not just saying we don't want to take care of your child. There are some reasons why. And since all of this has happened and since we've moved back up into phase four, we've had two, two situations where we've had individuals with the programs who have tested positive. And each time we worked with uh, Champaign Urbana Public Health District and the instructions were from then that we only shut down the affected classroom rather than the entire program. And that to me tells me all these mitigation efforts, these new health and safety policies that we have in place, they're really working. Otherwise we would have ended up closing the entire program. Wonderful. I mean, that's a lot of change in one year to think about all of those different policies and practices that you've implemented. So kudos to you and to your uh, staff at the center. They're the ones, they're the heroes, not me. (laughs) So let's talk about, since we were talking about those heroes, let's talk about the early childhood educators in your program. How does COVID-19 impact staffing in the center? 
that's been an interesting process to see how this has all unfolded. Um, back in eight, March and April, it was very, very weird time to be here. Um, we were all just trying to figure out, you know, which end is up, which is down. Things were changing so rapidly. Staff were feeling like we were never being honest with them. We weren't being transparent with them. We were always changing our mind, but that was only because of the guidance that we were receiving um, from above, whether it's from the CDC, from uh, Illinois Department of Public Health, Champaign-Urbana Public Health, and actually the campus too. Things were changing very, very quickly. So last part of March, full month of April, stress level out the roof. Um, things have subsided though. Um, as we moved out that emergency license and we realized, yeah, we know what we're doing. We're, we've got things in place. That stress started subside, to, to subside, but it didn't go away. And I think that's the important part that um, as director of a program, I have to acknowledge is the stress will never go away when we're operating under times of a pandemic. And I'm, you know, teachers are being asked to do a very, very difficult job in this kind of a context. And because of that, I always have to be aware that that stress is out there. So the little things that, you know, a year ago, staff would have slept off, something pop up and, oh, okay, I can deal with that. They become very big now because of this stress. And one of the things that I keep reminding staff is you have to be good to yourself. You have to do that, take care of yourself. You have to tap out if you need to during the course of the day, or you have to say, hey, I need a personal day, no questions asked. And sometimes that's hard for staff to say, I need help. But, you know, we, we try to create an environment that allow them to do that. We are also very fortunate here on the University of Illinois campus. The faculty staff assistance program is pretty phenomenal. And I've been fortunate, I've been fortunate as director that I have them as a resource that I can move my staff to. And there have been a couple of situations where an individual staff member was not coping at all. And it was spilling over into how he or she was working and doing her job or his job. And I, I, knowing that the faculty staff assistance program is there allowed me to say, hey, here are some resources. You need to get some feedback on how you can better cope so it doesn't have an impact on what you do in the day-to-day -day life. There's no end on the horizon, the immediate horizon. I mean, it's probably it's not gonna go away anytime soon. It's very real for our staff. So the constant message is we have to take care of ourselves. The other way in which the pandemic has really had an impact is impact on us on staff-wise is um, staffing levels. Um, we have lost staff because they're not comfortable working in this kind of environment. Um, we've lost a staff member because she has compromised health issues uh, and, and she could not return to work. Her doctor would not let her turn to, return to work under the current context because of that health risk. We've had a staff member who um, has a, an elementary age child with special needs where her childcare for him is very, very critical. Limited face-to-face -face instruction from the schools, the childcare situation that she has available for him is only for a half day experience. So we've had to adjust her schedule to allow her to be there to help support him for the other half of the day. Um, but probably what's really most pressing from our perspective is uh, when a staff position comes open, finding people to replace that person. It's been a challenge. Um, people are jumping up and down saying, this is the career I want to go into right now in the midst of a pandemic. And it makes it very, very challenging to find somebody.
Yeah, that sounds like quite a few challenges, but also some real awareness of the importance of self-care and the importance of supports on campus and supports for employees that are available to them. So thinking also on similar lines, but moving toward families, how did families react to those new ways of operating that you're doing right now during COVID-19? You can, I know the listeners can't see this, but you can see the smile on their face. Um, by and large, what I have to say on that is, our families have been really good. They've been really supportive of what we're trying to achieve. They understand some of the hurdles that we're having to place. They understand when we're doing things and implementing things, uh, policies and practices that are really impacting them and disrupting their life. They understand there's a reason behind it is to keep everybody safe. So by and large, the biggest majority of families are very, very supportive of what we do. But that doesn't apply to everyone though, just like in the other context. You know, we have had some families uh, who've withdrawn their children because they're fearful. They, they feel like this is not a context. I have the ability, I'm gonna make arrangements or maybe I'm working it from home. I'll just go ahead and take care of my child. We've had um, several families who voiced objections when we were operating under the emergency license because they needed the care or they thought they needed the care. And they tried to argue that they should be receiving care even though the emergency license wouldn't allow us to do that. Some. This is hard to believe, but some parents voiced objections when we had to close a classroom because of an uh, individual who tested positive and exposure and the need to quarantine, and they didn't quite understand the thought process behind that. Um, probably the biggest objection that I've heard, and again, it's very small scale, but it's a big objection, is not being able to enter, enter into our classrooms, our observation groups, and parents, uh, we want parents to feel that part of our uh, program. We want them to feel we're part of their family, open door policies and so on. And we cannot do that anymore. And that is very frustrating. And so when a parent is going through this drop-off protocol and their child is struggling during that transition and they're in tears and stuff, they want to go into observation group to make sure they calm down or they want to go in the classroom to help them uh, uh, get situated. We, we can't do those things. And that, that's, um, that's been a concern for some parents. And then some families have voiced objection because we are on the university campus and there are university students around. <laughs> and that's, we don't have the students coming in doing observations. We don't have them doing field work or anything like that, but we do have a few student employees who work for us. And I feel confident they're, they're going through the testing protocols just like the rest of us are, so. So since you just brought up some testing protocols, I'll skip a little bit ahead here to our testing question, which um, as many of our listeners may already know, University of Illinois faculty and staff, as well as students are lucky to have access to weekless live-based testing. Mm -hmm. And they do that either weekly or two or even three times a week. So with this innovative access to testing on campus, what does testing look like in the lab school? Sure. When the testing system was actually first rolled out and all faculty, all staff, and all students were required to go through twice a week testing, our staff were just part of that process. When the university made the decision a few weeks ago to back off so that only students had to do the twice a week testing and faculty and staff to do once a week testing, 
the CU Public Health District recommended that we continue the twice a week testing due to the increased potential exposures that childcare providers are facing. So, so every one of our staff members um, and our student workers and stuff, they're going through twice a week testing protocols. Any uh, family who has a university affiliation also to get into our buildings have to go through that testing protocol. Even if they're working remotely from home, they're doing their instruction or doing whatever their job entails from a remote system and they're not coming on campus, if they want to get into our buildings, they have to go through that testing protocol and then show the Safer Illinois app showing that the access is granted to you by the buildings. And approximately three-fourths, 75% of our families have some sort of a university connection. 25% um, of our children are children of faculty, 25% are children of support staff, building service workers, books, and so on. 25% are children of students, both undergraduate and graduate. And they all have access to the testing. So to come into this building, uh, to, to drop their kids off to pick them up, they have to show that they've gone through that testing. The last 25% are community families who don't have access to this testing. They go through additional steps during their drop-off and pick-up screening protocols. They have to answer additional sets of questions about travel, symptoms, those kinds of things. Got it. So I think your families really have uh, great security in understanding their risk level and, yes. and feeling secure in where they are in their health and risk level to COVID-19. So that is great. Um, so when we go back to children, we talked about families, we talked about teachers, but when we're talking about children, was there anything that surprised you about how they adjusted to these new protocols and new policies that you had? Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised by this. Um, you know, people were sounding alarm bells, especially back in March and April, and you could see on the horizon that we were going to have to change our day-to-day -day practice and change them in very significant ways. And people were saying, my staff were saying, oh, we can't do that. Kids will never do that. We can't. Well, everything that I've watched happen over the past few months just underscores the resiliency that we see in children if they're allowed to be resilient. They've coped much better <laughs> than parents. They've coped much better than my teachers with these new protocols, with the drop-off and pick-up procedure. They're not doing family-style meals, sir. No big deal. Oh, we have to put these masks on. No big deal. They are coping extremely, extremely well. And I think that is a takeaway message that we have to put our faith in kids, even little things like a concern that many of my teachers expressed, how are children going to be able to judge and, and evaluate emotions if they can't see your face? I did a little test, this, this off the wall test the other day because I was getting ready for a course I'm teaching to, to talk about this. I go in the classroom, I'm fully masked. I walk up to a group of three-year-olds. I, I asked them, I said, take a look at me. What can you see? And they said, oh, we see your eyes, you know, that kind of stuff. I said, okay, I want to tell you about four basic emotions, happy, sad, angry, or afraid. You tell me which emotion I'm experiencing. And I changed that just with my eyes and my face, my forehead, and they could do it. So this fear that children would be losing something in terms of emotional engagement and understanding and interpreting emotions and stuff. No, they, they, they found other ways to figure it all out. So resiliency, resiliency, resiliency. And my teachers are the same way. They have figured it out. They are coping extremely well with this new reality that's in front of them. I'm, that's great. I'm really cautiously optimistic. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So lastly, what have you learned from leading a center during COVID that you anticipate using maybe in the future? Probably the takeaway message for me as director in our leadership role is that notion of resiliency. As a program, we've been very, very resilient. Um, we have figured it out. We are doing things now that, you know, six months ago, if you would have asked my chief if we would be doing this, they would say, no, we could never do that. And I think it all puts it in perspective. Take it one step at a time. If it doesn't work, step back, reboot. You can figure out other ways to do it. And we just have to keep the end goal in mind is what kind of educational and care experiences do we want these children to have during very challenging situations. Resiliency, that's really important to remember. So thank you so much, Brent, for being our guest on the Illinois Early Learning Podcast. For our listeners, remember that this podcast was the first in a three-part series on childcare during COVID-19. Part two will focus on childcare during COVID-19 from the perspective of an early childhood educator. And part three will focus on childcare during COVID-19 from a parent's perspective. So we look forward to delving deeper into this topic. Until next time, thank you and keep early learning at the forefront. You have just heard a podcast by the Illinois Early Learning Project. For more information, please visit us at IllinoisEarlyLearning.org, where you can find evidence-based, reliable information on early care and education for parents, caregivers, and teachers of young children. Thanks for listening and for helping the children in your home, classroom, and community have a strong start in their early learning.